Welcome to episode 66 of Control the Controllables. Today we have Chris Souter. Chris, I call Mr. Tennis. He lives tennis, he breathes tennis. He has been a coach for many years uh, to, to many players in, from Scotland. And he's also spent a lot of time the last few years coaching coaches. Um, but at the heart of it, ultimately, he likes helping people. And that's, that's what makes him the coach that he is. He also runs his own podcast, which I would fully recommend. And we talk about that throughout, throughout the podcast. We get into loads of topics. You know, myself and Chris have had lots of discussions on tennis over the years. And it, it always, always gets the mind going. It's very thought-provoking. We, we talk about how he spent time in Scotland when the, the Murray brothers were coming up. Now, he's also spent a lot of time with Judy Murray and works with her very closely with the foundation and ultimately is, is working at all levels of tennis from, from, the, from the starting point to through to, to the real high level of tennis and I like to put it as a high, very high performing coach and I hope Chris likes that because it's a discussion that we've had previously. Um, I'm going to pass you over to Chris in a minute but just my usual plea, I've been listening to a few podcasts and it seems to be the common plea that happens at the start of the podcasts. Please like, share, if you think they're any good. Uh, we really welcome your comments. Thank you for those that have been getting in touch. We'd love to hear from you and rate and review the podcast. It just helps the algorithms of spreading the podcast around. And I'm sure you'll agree. The more people that get to listen to these uh, educational insights, the better. Um, so thank you for doing that and thank you for continuing to support. If you're new to the podcast, welcome. Where have you been? Episode 66. Um, please look through the, the list. Look through the list of other podcasts. I'm sure you'll find lots of amazing guests that you will enjoy. But I'm now going to pass you over to Chris Suter. So, Chris Suter, a big welcome to Control the Controllables. How are you doing? I'm doing great. The sun's shining in Scotland. Can you believe it? And, and you're on the other side of a podcast. How, do, how does that feel? I bet you, you, you've probably got some questions ready to ask me in a minute, have you? Yeah, yeah. I'm, I'm just saying to my wife this morning, I said, it's quite nice to be on the other side of the fence. and I'm quite chilled out, relaxed, just ready to have a good <laughs> chat, which is good. No, it's great to have you on. I know we've talked about it for a while. And for those listening, if you haven't listened to Chris's podcast, do. It's, it's absolutely brilliant. So Chris Suter's Tennis Journal um, certainly was one of the inspirations for us setting this up. You know, we've been listening to, to Chris for many years. Um, a brilliant tennis coach. Been, I, won't, I won't give his age away and say how long he's been coaching for, but it's, a, it's been a long time um, coaching players, I'm now coaching a lot of coaches as well, and I want to get into all those different different subjects. But what hits me first, Chris, is a lad from northeast Scotland. How how do you manage to get into a sport like tennis from up there? Well, that's a good question. By by accident, really. Uh, the 1985 
we all know the flame-haired German called Boris Becker wins Wimbledon. Yeah. And uh, I remember McEnroe winning it the year before. And I think I went along to the club and played a little bit with my pals, but never really stuck. But Boris Becker was the first, I suppose, the first athlete that I looked at that I could relate to because he was only five years yeah. older than me. And I went along and just got absolutely hooked and did the usual staying at the club all day, every day, playing with my pals. And then I yeah. suppose the big thing that happened was at the end of that summer, all my mates went back to doing the football and the rugby thing. And I just kept in love with tennis and wanted to play. Now, I've always, when I've reflected a lot about this over lockdown, I've kind of in a way, in a healthy way, infiltrated tennis at every level and every kind of nook and cranny that I've gone into. So. I had no friends at the tennis club, didn't know anyone other than my school friends who went back to, to football. And then unbelievably, the year after that, my mom and dad bought a house 100 yards away from the tennis club. Right, okay. so I, I just literally forced my way into it and kind of was the little kind of kid that was asking people to play and yes. challenging people and all that sort of stuff. And the local coach, who was a, a volunteer called Ken Melville, saw this and took an interest in me and uh, started coaching me for free. And uh, really, it kind of all snowballed from there in terms of he was the one that entered me into my first tournament. He was the one that put me forward for district trials and county trials and yeah. so on. So if it hadn't been for Ken, there's no chance that I, I, I think I would be here now. But yeah. it really was Boris Becker's fault. Um, yeah. if, anyone, if anyone wants somebody to blame. Um, but it was totally against the probability that I kind of grew up in a council uh, flat, like a, not a council yeah. estate, but like a council flat. And um, yeah, the n tennis has never been played by anyone in my family. The typical crowd at the club were not the typical crowd that I would hang about with uh, as pals and stuff. So. Yeah, infiltration is the word I keep coming back to. <laughs> but, but what was it? What was it that connected you to tennis? That what was the catch? What was well, the bit? I, I tell you what it was. The first thing was the feeling of, and it sounds a bit corny, but hitting the ball. Yep. The because ev up till then golf was my main sport. My grandfather played off scratch. Dad played off low handicap, and that was the sport that was forced onto me. And. I, I was quite good at it, but I didn't really feel anything. I didn't like, it wasn't competitive enough for me. But I remember yeah. when I started playing tennis, I loved the feeling of hitting the ball, but I loved the nature of the, the kind of gladiatorial back and forth. Yeah. I also, I remember very clearly remembering, even at 14, 15, that I'll never be as good as I could be which was a really big hook for me because in the grand scheme of things, I was rubbish when I started and I accelerated reasonably quickly. But I remember having this thought when I was about 15 that this sport, I will never be as good as I could be because there's so many different things to it. Uh, and there's, even when you, you know, even at the top of the game, you know, we all know like, you know, the Rafa's, the Novak's, the Serena's, they're always looking for that extra little 0.1% here and there. So I had that thought really early, and that was the thing I absolutely fell in love with. I could become a student of the game, whereas yeah. golf, it was forced on me, really. Mm. And is that why, 
in the nicest possible way, Chris, you're you're still a tennis nerd. Absolutely. I think, yeah, it it was 100% that. I totally studied the game. You know, remember the old, like, Servant Volley or the Ace magazines and stuff? I would get them and read every single word over and over and over. I would I'd VHS tape matches and watch, you know, the 88 Lendl Becker Nabisco Masters final, 7-6 in the fifth. I'd watch that, rewind it and start watching it again. I just was completely obsessed with it. And I think it's you know, a big reason that I've gone down the road I have in the last 10, 12 years with coach education. Yeah. And if you, if you had a different upbringing, let's say you had an upbringing of tennis being around in the family, finance not being an issue, do you think it's possible for a kid that has all of that to have that same level of passion and curiosity, really, that you, you seem to have with the sport? It must be possible. I yeah. think it may be by default it would make it less likely if it was all kind of handed on a plate and everything was uh, comfortable. And, you know, I, I suppose because I didn't play my first tournament until I was 13, I was so far behind the players that I was playing that I felt I had to catch up big time. But I had this innate feeling that I knew I could catch up. Yeah. So I think it, that by default made me invest a lot of time studying the game and so on but I did feel as another side to this story if you like is that tennis was the first time in my life that I felt I could express myself because I was painfully shy as a kid really up until probably in into my 20s I was painfully shy but tennis gave me this platform to be like vent and like I was crazy when I played like absolutely crazy so I you know I, I did I did from an early age see that I didn't fit in with that crowd and my way of getting through that was to really study and get like get better quickly and so on. so I don't I don't know uh, I, don't, I don't like the kind of cheesy idea of I was so hungry and other people weren't but I yeah, just yeah. knew that I had to accelerate it big time yeah and in terms of accessibility one one in location two in terms of finance how how was that for you certainly as you started to get a little bit better a tough well, it wasn't tough in terms of to play a lot of tennis because i, I was literally 100 yards in the club i yeah. think the membership for a junior was maybe 25 pounds a year yeah. and i god i got my money's worth out of that yeah. it was probably point two pence forever <laughs> I played you know but yeah. the the thing that again this is something I've reflected on until only re- recently was that when I first ventured out of the northeast of Scotland to play tournaments I was 17 years old I'd left school right. you know I was paying my own way I could not have done it before I left school one because my mum if I'd said to my mum can I go to Glasgow and play a tournament? Oh, by the way, I'll have to stay over in a hotel or a B&B. I have to get the train down. She would have said, no chance. Yeah. There was no, in the greatest of respect, there was no support from my mum and dad for me to play tennis. It was a yeah, nuisance. Yeah. It was an absolute nuisance. <laughs> so the total opposite end of the scale to what we see now in terms of parents p- pushing and all that sort of stuff. So... When I think back, first year under 18s, I'd left school, I was paying my own way, 
And then the second year under 18, so I'm still technically a junior. I'd left school like 18 months ago. Yeah, yeah. Work, working full time, but still paying my own way in the junior. So that was the only way I, I could have done yeah. it. So I couldn't do or couldn't have done what I've done now. Like, I was so money was not there, but also, yeah, the equipment and stuff. I had like one racket in my school bag, you know, I had no yeah. tennis shoes, I didn't have any tennis clothes to so yeah. to speak. So yeah, it was a big struggle for me that way. And do you think it's more accessible now? Do you think it's in, in, in the northeast of Scotland than it was 30 years ago? Yeah, I think it's, I don't know if it's more accessible to people that don't have money. Yeah. I think it's quite easy to go along to a local club and, and join in and stuff, but I don't see it as being a sport that attracts naturally to people yeah. that are, I, I don't even know what the classes are now. Like I would have said, I come from a working class background. Seems yeah. to be so many more classes nowadays, but yeah. I don't see it as being a sport that uh, council estate kids are going to naturally gravitate towards. And then I suppose my last one on accessibility when I think of Aberdeen, mm -hmm. I start shivering. Now maybe that's <laughs> maybe maybe that's unfair because I sit here in the, the south yeah. of Spain, which actually we've it's it's only 20, 20 degrees today, which is the coolest day we've had in a long time. Is is, is it possible to play outside all year round? You must yeah, lose yeah. some. You must lose some days, some weeks. Yeah, yeah, definitely. Well, the traditionally in Scotland, never mind the northeast of Scotland, tennis was a summer sport and badminton was quite yeah. often the winter equivalent. And I did play a bit of badminton, but I, because I lived so close to the club, I played all year round from probably 14 onwards. I played yeah. all the way through the winter. And that actually, ironically, I think stood me in good stead because I caught up with a lot of my peers quicker because they did give up in the yeah. The, the summer but the, we didn't have any indoor courts in Aberdeen until 1995 I don't think so yeah, um, yeah it, if you wanted to play all year round there was no other option you just had to play outdoors yeah. but yeah it's awful like where I grew up it's a town called Stonehaven and it's right on the seafront so the wind yeah. was unbelievable I remember the first time I played indoors I couldn't believe it like the luxury it was like the ball's yeah. not ball's not going left to right across the court yeah but you, you'd have to develop some acceptance in, in those conditions. Someone, someone said something to me once, actually, about the Irish golfers. They mm. said, imagine, imagine if the Irish golfers, like Rory McIlroy, Darren Clark, these sort of guys, if they'd been brought up playing on an indoor golf course, do you think that they would be in the top 10 in the world at mm. golf? Yeah. You yeah. know, and it's, it's quite a Definitely. good analogy. Well, I think the, the, if you're talking about reception skills and getting your feet in place, you know, you can't, you can't do that too early when you play at Stonehaven Tennis Club because if you do, yeah. the ball is off, you know. But I think there's also the, I, I've heard you say this a lot, is I do still think tennis is an outdoor sport. Yeah. Uh, and, and if anything, I think the, the culture's changed quite a lot in the last 20 years in terms of people think they only play indoors and it's almost yeah. like a punishment to play outdoors. Yeah. And, you know, and kids, good players, they don't want to train outdoors. And I'm like, well, sorry, but most of the season's outdoors, so you better get used to it, you know? Oh, no, absolutely. Um, in terms of your ambition, so mm. I guess we, uh, and we're, uh, whether it's guilty of it, we certainly do it with our players, and I'm a, I'm a believer in goal setting, but sometimes I do also think you lose a little bit of the magic of the sport, that just mm. kids do play and they just dream and they just do, they do what they do. 
Did, did you ever have any ambition for it to go anywhere, or were you just purely playing it for the love of the sport at that, that sort of age? I remember very clearly sitting in my, what we called social education uh, class when I was in that fifth year at school last year. And they went round the room asking, what do you want to be when you leave school? And everyone was either oil and gas or a trade, maybe go do business or accounts at university, a doctor, whatever. And I stood up and said, I want to work in tennis. That was what I I said, I want to work in tennis. Uh, I knew that I knew a hundred percent. There's no danger. I was going to be a professional tennis player. So it was never on track in that sense. But my logical mind was, well, I know I can't be a player, but I know I love tennis as much as anything else in the world. So that was my ambition was to work in yeah. tennis in some capacity. So that, yeah, the, the ambition was there from a young age. And I do think, well, I do think that, as a as an aside of that, that I think that should be one of our goals as a, as coaches, is that the number one thing we should have at the back of our mind is that we want this person to be, at absolute minimum, a huge fan of tennis for the rest of their life. Yeah, yeah and hopefully then that's the base level. Then maybe still be involved in tennis as a player. Uh, the reality is if you then go in and have family you're going to introduce your kids to tennis big time and I think we miss a trick I think there's too much emphasis on this mini tennis upwards rather than actually no focus on the adult tennis and then it'll trickle its way down uh, easily but yeah I always wanted to be involved in tennis career-wise yeah no and I I think on that on that tennis as well and we're getting into a bigger subject here but Mm. there's in my opinion, there's too many tennis coaches that don't have a passion for tennis, but they, <laughs> but they've actually done they've done the tennis playing bit. Yeah, felt like they've failed. Mm. So so then have gone well. well. I can make twenty quid an hour. I can make twenty five quid an hour if I coach, and, and yeah. maybe got nothing else. So then this whole kind of tennis ecosystem is filled with this this kind of negativity of. Oh, tennis, tennis is rubbish. Tennis, whatever, whatever it might be, and I yeah, think yeah. We, we have to get that solved in our in our sport. Because if you, when I speak to you about tennis, I come away feeling great about tennis, and, mm. and I, I'd like to think people that speak to me about tennis have the same sort of thing. So, when it is a true passion and a true love of the sport, that's yeah. when it authentically gets passed on to people. Yeah, yeah, definitely, 100%. And, and I never really thought of it that way. For me, being a coach was a promotion. You know what I mean? It, it was like a privilege to be a coach rather than like what you're saying is you, you, I'm not good enough to be a player, so I'll be a coach. That's a demotion. Yeah. And it's like you're settling. I'll just be a coach. Uh, now, yeah, you don't want to probably get me started on that whole passion thing, but it, it, it does. It's like the equivalent of a primary teacher, isn't it? I remember being at a dinner party many years ago, and uh, the girl that I was sat next to, I asked her what she was doing. She said, I've just uh, finished doing a degree in accounts, but I don't want to be an accountant. So first of all, I'm thinking, well, what a waste of four years that was. And then the next thing she said, I want to be a primary teacher. So instantly I'm like, wow, that's good. You know, it's a really amazing job society-wise and and I said, what makes you want to be a teacher? She goes, the holidays. I want it, you know, I like the whole, and I just, I literally ripped into her in front of everyone. And I was like, you don't, please, 
please don't be a teacher because you want the holidays because if my kid ends up being in your class i'll know that you're not a great teacher you know it's yes. it's uh, yeah it's big big in coaching i think yeah no it is and we don't we don't see it anywhere near we don't see it anywhere near enough i really don't yeah. think so in yeah. in terms of your uh, your coaching life then how you, how did you start becoming a coach how did you get your first opportunity how did that all begin well, I have a, a gentleman called Robin Kerr to thank for that. Uh, again, when I think back, it's crazy because in 1992, so what was I, 18, just turning 19, he watched me play a final. And at the end of the final, in the bar, spoke to me and said, you know, I've, I've, you know we'd known each other for years, but he was a full-time coach in the northeast of Scotland. And he said, I'd like to offer you the opportunity to be my assistant coach. And what he did was essentially he took me under his wing. He was the head coach at a club called Cults Tennis Club in Aberdeen, which is the biggest club in Aberdeen, outdoor club. And uh, he essentially punted letters out to every club that he knew that didn't have a coach saying, I've got a coach for you. He, I'll train him up. And then I'll send them out. And then, of course, he skimmed off the, the top and made, made a bit of money out of me that way. So he 100%, for whatever reason, invested in me or thought something of me. Uh, and that was my opening to get into coaching. But he was unbelievable. He would sit me down in the clubhouse and make me dictate everything he was saying about you know, his coaching philosophy. And he would make me go out and do feeding tests and yeah. you know, like he was so he was a bit of a drill sergeant, but when I think back, he was only 24, 25. Was it Louis Kaya? <laughs> it wasn't Louis Kaya, but it was like he was the first Louis Kaya in Scotland. But he was unbelievable and he was like that with the players. He was a real hard kind of guy with the players. And and he didn't come from like what you would call a, a coach a playing background either. And I do think there was something maybe a, a little bit it's like I don't have that, so I need to up my game in, in another way. He didn't have the res instant respect from his playing standard. He was played well, but he wasn't like yeah. great. And uh, yeah, so he got me into it in 1992. Okay. So now, now people can uh, work out how old I am. <laughs> <laughs> and how, how many of those philosophies and lessons that, that Robin taught you, have you continued in your career? I would say the thread of what he taught me there is still there in terms of the first thing that he made me do was measure and monitor as much as possible. Right. So we had lesson plans. He would make me handwrite lesson plans out of a template and he would get me to measure even like the, the rally length, you know, what's their highest rally length from the service line versus the baseline versus cross court with movement. Uh, you know, so he would get me to measure all that sort of stuff down and he would also get me to, uh, keep a, a note of what we'd worked on, why we worked on, and then it would snowball into the, the next lesson. So that that's ma maintained all the way through. Um, I suppose the other thing that has maintained is simplicity. Uh, now, don't get me wrong, I went through a stage in my 20s, I think we all did, where you just like throw the kitchen sink at stuff because yeah. you go to conferences and courses. But at, at the heart of everything I do now, I try and keep it as simple as possible. And he was really big on that in terms of, the player can only focus on one thing at a time. Make sure that you've given that one thing and make sure you know that that one thing's a priority. So yeah, th those two things, and also the work ethic, he was like mad on, on working hard and stuff. So those things still stay to me to this day. 
three pretty solid things yeah, for people. Do you know what I mean? For, for people listening, and I, I don't know if you have heard it, but we had Steve Hewitt, who's the CEO of Gymshark. He was on. He, he was on the the show last week or a couple mm-hmm. couple of days ago, and he talks about four words that they've got in their culture, and it's work hard, stay humble. Yeah. And 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 yeah. all he talked about, and you would love it because I know it's very much up your street mm-hmm. in, in terms of your thoughts. But he just said, look, we basically go through seven or eight rounds of interviews to make sure that they're not an arsehole. (laughs) That's basic. So their basic premise, and this is is the fastest growing or one of the fastest growing businesses in the UK, Mm. you know, worth 1.45 billion. That's what it's worth right now. You know, it's absolutely just gone from just a young lad in in the lounge making a couple of vests with his mum's mm. sewing machine to this absolute and, and he talked about just be a good person just be decent mm. just yeah, be yeah. all right that's yeah. it and, and 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 basically their whole their whole philosophies cultures environment is mm. all that's what it's all about yeah, know, yeah. get get that bit right and the yeah. other bits will be the other bits will be quite easy Definitely. But it's interesting that I come back to this word infiltration and, and some people think of it as if that as a negative, but I, I think of it as in a positive way. But every when I reflect on it, every area of tennis I've gone into and no matter what I've done, I, I do feel like I'm infiltrating it. The probability is I shouldn't be there. I'm not from yeah. that background. I'm sitting sometimes around the table with people that have played played slams, won slams, you know. Yeah. coach people that have once that and I'm sitting there going I'm a wee fisherman's son from the northeast of Scotland what the hell am I yeah. doing here you know yeah. and and I know imposter syndrome has been done to death and everyone knows what that is now but I do experience that quite a lot but then when I reflect on it I go I'm actually the reason is because I, I work hard everyone knows that I've got their best interests at heart and I'm actually and this sounds really maybe a bit arrogant but I'm actually an okay guy you know yeah. what I mean my ego's in check uh, yeah. And even yesterday, down at the NTC, one of the candidates came up to me at the end, end of the lunch. She was like, you know everyone. I went, well, I don't, I, well, I don't, I don't know everyone really well, but so everyone speaks to you. I was like, yeah, I'd like to think it's because I'm a nice guy. <laughs> so, yeah, yeah. You know, yeah. my ego yeah. is at the door, you know, completely. Yeah. Yeah, and I think that if you go back to what you said about why Robin took a chance on you or, or pulled you in. If people that ultimately invest in people that have passion and that are, that are decent guys. And I, if I share a little, little story, Chris, I know I've mentioned this to you before, but it was very impactful in certainly my relationship with yourself. My first kind of doing with you as such was, it was a level four course. Mm. My wife was pregnant you know, we were going for the 12 week scan. It fell on the first day of the course or maybe the last day of the course. Yeah, I think it was the last and, day. and I sent an email through and the email that came through was such a, a lovely human email <laughs> that, <laughs> that, that, that empathized with what we were going through. It wasn't a, didn't make me feel bad in any way. It was absolutely, you dare miss that off you go. And, and, and that, that, that has an impact people want, people want to work with people <laughs> That, yeah. that make them feel good, you know, and mm-hmm. they'd have that, that, that the right interest at heart. So it's absolutely no surprise that you keep finding yourself through and, into different stages. Mm-hmm. And when did, as, as a coach, when did it start to, I suppose, 
ramp up a bit. We'll, we'll not get into the words performance and development. We've had a few yeah, chats yeah, yeah. on that over the last few months. <laughs> or we might touch on it later. But I guess for those listening, the higher level players, mm-hmm. you know, you start, your reputation starts to grow. How, how did that happen? And how did you start to kind of find your feet at that, that higher level as a coach? Well, it came pretty early, actually. Yeah. And the, the, the harsh reality of it was I did an Easter camp at a tiny tennis club called Ellen Tennis Club, uh, which is north of Aberdeen, two-court club. Just sweep the glass off the courts, put the nets up, take the camp, and then put them away, <laughs> put the nets away at the end of it. And I had eight kids in this Easter camp, and five out of the eight kids within one year were in the national squads, like Scottish national squads. Sure. So it just so happened that the mother of one of these kids was the local primary school teacher and she was a tennis player and she ran a short tennis club after right. school so they came to me hitting the ground running and, and I, I swear to god i remember it, it was like you know going back to the keep and count let's see how many you can get from the service line and i had to stop uh, one girl jenna uh, who was like my first kind of decent player when she was like 135 and i'm like waiting i was like no we need to get going now because we've got other stuff to do I had to stop her at 135 and she'd been like eight years old so I got this crop of players that within a year were in the Scottish national system if you like and then as you know tennis is very much like you mentioned the word reputation you then start going to tournaments people start to know your face you start to then go oh god these kids are actually good you know they ended up playing British nationals tennis units ITFs so in, in a way, by default, I, I stumbled upon four or five players that were really good really early, like within that first year of me coaching. Yeah. D- didn't have a clue what I was doing. I literally was teaching them how to play the game. That's all I knew. Like when I think back to technically how poor they were, it was yeah. awful. But they could all play the game well and they all moved well and they all competed well. Yeah. Uh, but they all got to a pretty good level. And then from there, you start to every generation that goes by, you learn from those mistakes and then you kind of refine and so on. So, you know, within maybe 10 years, you're regularly churning out players that are like by default, like British nationals is, an, is like a, the minimum required, you know, to, mm-hmm. to be considered a decent player, I think. So, um, yeah, it kind of went from there really early doors, really lucky. Yeah. When you talk about generations, tennis seems to be quite like that. You know, and I would imagine certainly in a country like Scotland, what's what's your memory of what the golden generation was? Is the generation that really stands out for you? Yeah, well, I suppose from a Scottish point of view, when I first got involved with uh, when Judy was national coach and she asked me yeah. to be part of the the national team, when we were doing those national camps, you know, at weekends and maybe doing trips and so on, the I suppose the golden generation, as you would say, would have been that 84 to 87 age group where you had, you know, your, you had, uh, you know, Mackins and then you got the, the Brewers, the Jamie Baker, Andy, Jamie, Colin, Elena, you know, you've got those. Now, I, I was not working day in and day out with any of those players, but, you know, when they come together in national camps, you're helping out and stuff and taking the odd trip uh, with them and stuff. But that would have been the golden generation. But I think the, the one after that, you know, if they, they kind of set the scene, if you like. So that age group from maybe 87 
then down to you know the 91 92s it just made it so much more obvious what we needed to do to yeah. get players to that level so i had in in my program alone in aberdeen you know had eight or nine players that were you know, playing right up at the, the top end of the GB game. But I wasn't thinking anything of it because we had players playing, like Andy was right up there at that point, yeah. in junior slams and whatever. So you again, it felt like you were catching up or like the, the benchmark became so high at one point that playing tennis Europe grade threes, you were like, yeah, this is just like rubbish compared to where it yeah. could go. So, yeah. Yeah, that awareness of standards is massive, isn't it? It's 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 such, it's such a like, just in how how we think and, and, and spending. I know from a personal point of view, if I spend time with some of the better players that that we've worked with on Junior Grand Slam, even just going back and watching the warm up of some mm. half decent players, like why are you missing so much? Yeah, like what like what you what you, you whereas maybe if the eyes haven't seen that. It's actually you actually go wow they're hitting the ball well. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> how how you look how you look at it is is unbelievable. Yeah, big time. I, I I use this expression with kind of younger coaches. I said don't get baffled by the bang. Yeah, so yeah. what I mean by that, especially indoors, when they see a player play that they think is decent, they get baffled. They get kind of starstruck by the noise of the ball being hit. I said, well, no, yeah. look at the repeatability. Look how efficient it is. And I always remember James uh, McGee playing the Loughborough Challenger. And I'd known James from when he was a junior. And he was warming up. And people were like, you know, wow, he's hitting the ball so hard. I was like, yeah, but let's look at what he's actually doing with the ball. You know, is he repeating it? And even James yeah. was like, what are, you, what, are you get, what are you asking them to look at? And I said, oh, we're just how repeatable the ball was. Yeah. But even me saying that made him repeat it with more shape. Yeah. You know what I mean? Absolutely. So it's like I said, that's that's a player. You know, if 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 you can just say right one thing and he snaps onto it. But awareness of standards for me across the board is an absolutely massive thing. It's like otherwise, what are you shooting for? If you yeah. don't know the next level, so and you've got to keep it current. You know, you see, I was at Tarbs in January, February, and yeah. you see the level of the two girls in the final, and you're like, man, it's gone up again. You know, yeah. so it, you have to keep current with all that stuff, big time. What's what's gone up? Fortune's gone up. Well, I think the 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 final we had that Brenda Frutoba who won it, and I suppose the, the mini professional is a, an expression I'm not massively keen on, but she did look in terms of mentality like a mini professional, but yeah. it was more the quality of the like actually playing the game. You know, that I think we kind of got sometimes the girls game it does my head in when they think that girls play a, the similar way, you know, that they stay tight to the baseline, they hit hard and flat, they can't do this, they can't do that. And that self-fulfilling prophecy kicks in and then the next generation don't get taught to come up the net and volley or don't get taught to kick the serve, slice the backhand, yeah. uh, def defend well, etc. cetera. Uh, but Brenda was like she was doing it all. She was equally as good in defense as she was in attack. She knew when to pull the trigger. She moved unbelievably well. She competed relentlessly hard. It just was like almost a fuller package. Whereas if you go back to even the last time I probably was at Tarbes was when Sloane Stevens was playing it. And yeah, she, yeah. Would have, she would have done the basics to a really good level. Yeah. I mean, like time on the ball, you know, yeah 
work it sweetly, moved it about well, but yeah, they're just more complete. Yeah. Where does the game go next? Well, I think it goes full circle in terms of old school. Like I, I, I've said this for a few years, and and hopefully, well, hopefully it'll come true because otherwise I look like a chump. But the um, there's only so much they can do in terms of shot tempo. You know, like you see some of the tempos that they're playing at now. If you have a player that's coming up, you've only got two options. Can they do that equally, if not better? Or do they bring something different? Yeah. So if you, if you have uh, you know, that different mentality of adding skills at a younger age so they've got more options tactically uh, to, to play with and more skills to play about with, then I think we might start to see players, you know, the odd player that's going to be a serve volley or the odd player that's going to be the, the kind of bring players to the net counterpunch, you know, they're going to venture up to the net in a more traditional way, shall we say. But yeah, I think it, it's going to go that way, I think, because people are going to realise, well, I can't just keep hitting the ball at one, one, uh, one shot every 1.2 seconds. You know, it's like, yeah. there's a limit to how, how we can do yeah. that. Yeah, no, it's, it's, it's interesting. And it, it brings in the... Um, I don't know if you've heard, I'm sure you have, but the, the O'Shaughnessy, the data, all the data stuff around, I'm a little bit sceptical on the 65% mm. net points won as a statistic yeah. without really understand, understanding it. Because I guess, the, I suppose the counter argument to that is, why aren't people doing it? Mm -hmm. it's, a, it's a pretty sophisticated world out there. And, and okay, we could all have our cynical moments thinking there's some people in the, in the sport that aren't fantastic, but there's some great minds out there. So, mm. so why, why aren't people serve volume more? If, if the, that's my thing for Craig, if, if it is proven that you win 65% of points and that's just what happens across the board, why, why aren't people doing it? Yeah, well, I think, yeah, you're right. And I think the, the counter of that is that habits to make people do that come from maybe eight nine ten years ago as in in yeah. terms of development so if you if you take let's say we all know the average age is pretty old although there are some young whippersnappers coming in now and um, if you think say take 24 years old and you're saying right you need to add that those skills need to have been developed 10 10 years ago so it's not not like you can take someone on the tour and say right you need to start doing this to to win points but I think that that's why I think I'm such a big fan of you give when a kid is a young player an emerging player you give them as many tools as you can skill wise tactically wise and so on so that when they grow into their body and their personality starts to kick in and they've got the physicality the personality and the skill set to choose what they how they want their game style to be and yeah. I think you know, there's a lot of people talk about game style is just the the mix of the physical and the personality you know that's it used to be physical wasn't it it's like you know right you're six feet five you've got to play big sir big forehand or whatever then all of a sudden people were like oh well no there's the personality comes into it as well you know you could be six feet five you'd be an introvert and be risk adverse so maybe you'd be better to stay behind the baseline and, and wait till they miss and i think there's a third element which is the skill set you know, it's, you, if they've got more skills at their disposal and they're a beast and they, they know what their personality is, they can really choose exactly what their game style should be. 
yeah, I think there's three elements there instead. I like that a lot, but I'm smiling because I've got I've got a story I have to tell, and he won't he won't mind he won't mind me mentioning him because he's he's like a he's like a son to me really. Uh, Josh Josh Ward Hibbert, mm. and and Josh, I mean Josh is such I mean he's now. Josh is now a professional basketball player. So that's the, this is the sort of athlete we're talking about. And I started working with him when he was about 15. And I was like, this kid, what an athlete. But he uses his athletic ability only in defense. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that, that's the only, and he was doing okay. He was maybe 500 in the world, junior, 600 in the world, whatever it might've been. And, and I started really starting to talk to him about, let's, we, we, let's use that athletic ability in a little bit more of a proactive way, playing up the court. And um, we were way in, we went all the way to Asia, which is not, which is not close. And I watched him play a couple of matches there where fair play, great student, Josh, would take on board. We had a great relationship. And he would like, he came off the court losing a match, like one and one. And I'd be like, how was that, Josh? And he was like, yeah, good. I felt like I hit the ball well. And I'm sitting there thinking, hit the ball well. You've just chewed balls in the back fence. <laughs> but, but what I, I realised as I got older as a coach, what he was doing there is he was breaking free from the, this, this thing that was holding him back. And, and you talk about risk adverse. Mm. His mum, Shelley, and if Shelley does listen to this, we love you, Shelley. This is not a dig at you. <laughs> but Shelley, if Shelley booked a flight with Ryanair, she would read every word on the terms and conditions before you click accept mm-hmm. every time if yeah. it was booking a flight every week she would have it in her head they might change the words they might be catching this out so so what i learned as i worked with josh is yes he was this incredible athlete but actually his personality mm. was very low risk you yeah. know and that and that ability to change him into the, what my vision of him as a tennis player, and probably if we were both honest, we probably never quite got that balance exactly right, in all honesty. Mm. Um, yeah. But the question that jumps into my mind as you, as you were talking, Chris, is when we talk about skill and giving players skill, is that for coaches to give the skills, or is that the environment that they're in on a day-to-day basis that provides those, those skills? I think it's a blend of the two. In terms of the, when you say environment, are you meaning surface, weather, or are you meaning the I'm, coach? I think what I'm, what I'm getting at, and actually, again, it comes from a conversation. I've actually just had this conversation today with one of my coaches. I don't remember ever being taught skill. Mm. I just think that I picked up skill from the environment, the club nights, the, yeah, the men's yeah. doubles, the playing cricket in the, in the car park, the playing against the wall, the doing all of these different things. And I think that's where a lot of the skill development used to happen. Whereas mm-hmm. now it feels as if the, the onus is on the coach to develop skill. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, definitely there needs to be, well, we, we all know that implicitly is the best way to learn skills. So like you say, learning cricket or to playing cr- cricket, uh, playing football, playing bluff, playing touch, you know, all those things, they teach you the skills without someone needing to be there. I suppose if I was to go one layer down, which is not a shock to you to hear that I would go to more layers. But the, the, for me, I think 
I don't think of skills as in the traditional eye handy, get out of jail adaptation. I'm meaning skills is someone's ability to do something. So it could yes. be physical skills, technical skills, tactical skills, psychological skills, coping skills. Yep. You know, that's the way I, I'm, I'm thinking in terms of skill development. But yes. 100%, if you take what I do with the Judy's Foundation, what we are ironically doing is trying to formalize what is was informal before. So we are yep. getting parent, parents to play with their kids in such a way that they learn these skills without even realizing. I yeah. believe the sweet spot for us coaches is for us to create environments where the players are learning these skills without us, uh, without them even realizing. Yeah. I, I think there's a big issue in coaching where people think they have to teach everything. Mm. And the, the reality, if you even think that you're doing it explicitly, so yeah. it means that you're limiting how much impact you can have. And I think that, you know, I, I ask this question a lot of people. I say, out of everything you know and can do in your entire life, how much have you been formally taught and how much have you learned? And people reflect on that and they have lots of different answers. But in percentage terms, I think it is 99.99999 going on for a long time that we yeah. just learn and 0. 0.000 were formally taught. So I think I'm more in the camp of we need to create environments where people learn versus people are taught yeah. skills. But to do that, you need, it takes a, you need to be pretty smart to do that, I think, to create that environment where people feel like they're playing, but you know in the back of your mind what you want to get out of it. And to, yeah. have, the, to have that ability to remain silent as a yep. coach, when that's going on, is is uh, is tough because people think they get paid by the word. And you have to be a good salesperson to sell that, I guess, to, to the client, which is ultimately the parent yeah. as well. Yeah, 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 big time. Yeah, because if they come and see X, Y, and Z, and they're thinking that they should be getting A, B, and C, yeah, then there's a big, uh, big divide. But I think you, you know, that parent education is. Uh, so important right from the very very start to get them on board to get them to know what your philosophy is and i think i remember you hearing you say before about how you had a conversation with a father who had three kids i think it might have even been on my podcast and yeah. and you said we just after a few chats it was just clear that our philosophies and our values were yeah. not aligned so we just said no yeah. oh, it's better you go somewhere else so yeah. it's the it's the bravest and best thing that I've ever done when I've done that at the academy. Yeah. And, it's, I, I, and again, yeah. to, to any coaches listening, I would say it, it's that management of expectation before anyone signs any agreement, before anyone yeah. goes in and, and, and try and look, I'll use your words, try and look at the extra layers of working mm. with a person and working with mm -hmm. a family rather yeah. than just looking at that initial financial income that might happen by, by, by somebody coming on yeah. board because yeah. the, the bottom line is you start working with the wrong person the wrong family nobody's happy no <laughs> i know and uh, yeah yeah we can get onto that later about how important that is but the, i would say the the most impactful thing i did in my coaching career when i was right in the thick of it was uh, disconnecting the relationship that i had with my number one player they were yeah. about 13, played well, one of the best in Scotland. And uh, for years, there'd been issues in terms of 
alignment of values and principles and whatever. And eventually enough was enough. And I said, no, I'm sorry, I'm not going to do it anymore. And the ripple effect that had with other parents of players was unbelievable because they realized that I was yeah. true to my word, that I wasn't just saying it. Yeah. Uh, now, I wouldn't advise that if anyone's listening to deliberately do that, but the byproduct of having the conviction to say, no, I'm sorry, we're not aligned. You're not, you know, your values are on a totally different page to mine. Uh, I'm not investing any more time in your kid. And yeah. uh, every all of a sudden, all the ducks went in a row with all the other parents and they were <laughs> a little bit more uh, on board. It's a very powerful sales pitch without mm. trying to be. <laughs> yeah, 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 exactly. Yeah, yeah. You know, Standard I know colors. that. Yeah, and I know that one, I mean, I, I again, I, I, I don't use it as a sales pitch, but I realize it has, I guess, worked as a sales pitch, is we don't allow anyone at the academy unless they come for a trial. Yeah. But it's not, it's, they're not just trialing us, mm -hmm. <laughs> we're trialing them. Yeah. We're not yeah. trialing just their level, we're trialing them as people, them as humans them as connections you know their their family how, how all of those things do and it, and it is amazing how often people then go oh all right yeah. <laughs> it's, not, yeah. it's not just we don't just have the power just to pick where we go because yeah, yeah. and i've talked about this on lots of podcasts that's where i think tennis can be quite tricky mm. that, that power piece <laughs> yeah of, you know you you as the, the sort of coach you are chris you were you could be head of chelsea's academy mm. you're, you're very much picking players to come to your academy and that's a that's a very yeah. different thing anyway i'm going into old topics a little bit <laughs> to show to the listeners um i want to move into obviously I'm, i know you still do coach some players mm -hmm. but you're the mainstay of what you do i guess has moved into coaching people <laughs> you know yeah. coaching coaching coaches coaching parents coaching mm -hmm. coaching lots of different people how how did that transition happen and how I guess my second part to that question, Chris, is how how do you find that different from coaching players? Uh, well, it was about 12 years ago. The simple fact of the matter was I'd done the whole touring around. And, you know, I think the last year I did it full time, I was on the road 28 weeks of the year. And the simple fact of the matter was I married Ria, my wife, and we were going to try and have family. And uh, we had the very frank discussion of, well, I'm sorry, but if we're having kids, you ain't traveling around the world, you know, doing, doing your thing. So I started to explore, you know, what I could do that would still keep me, you know, motivated. Uh, yeah. And I, I kind of mapped it all out. And I thought, right, well, I would love to work with coaches working with their players. That was my my desire because I thought well if I could be the coach that works with the coach and their player I don't have to travel to the tournaments but I can still have the the feeling of being you know in that kind of circle yeah. of life. Um, so the obvious first choice was getting to tutoring which I was amazed it was pure chance uh, I, I met a guy called Larry Jurevich who has I think been mentioned on your podcast a few times from the the Irish guys yeah, yeah, yeah. he had just been made the head of performance coach education for the LTA and we met at some forum or whatever and somebody introduced me to him and suggested oh Chris would be quite a good future tutor or whatever and he said typical Larry he went you've got 30 seconds sell yourself to me so I can't even remember what I said but I obviously did an okay job and he said right come down for tutor training at the NTC 
we're doing tutor training whenever it was in a couple of weeks. And I went, right, okay. And I went down very naively. And uh, I remember rocking up, I won't say who it was that greeted me, but I saw such and someone who was a tutor uh, and a tutor on my level five, actually, just a few years before that. And uh, he said, hey, Chris, how are you doing? You know, are you here working with Joanna? And I was like, no, no, I'm here for the tutor training. And he's like, what tutor training? It's like Larry Jurevich's. Now, he'd invited me along to the tutor training with the, the actual current tutor workforce, and I had no experience. So there right. were so many noses out of joint. It was an absolute joke. Like it was, they were so appalled that this rookie yeah. who had never tutored a day in his life had all of a sudden been thrown into it. And that, that was very much the start of it, a bit of a baptism, baptism of fire. Um, but one thing it's worth mentioning, I think, I don't know where it'll take us, but I'm going to use the word deliberately. I was appalled at how quickly I became known as a tutor or a coach educator. Right. Like I'd worked for 18, 19 years coaching and it took, you know, I, I'm a great believer. It takes 10 years to kind of earn your stripes as a coach. So right. I had 10 years earning my stripes, 10 years of kind of really trying to, hone my craft and get better and better and better and work with better players and so on and within 18 months people were like yeah you, you do coach it you're a coach educator and i just there's something in that that just grated on me because i think it means that people don't see coach educators as on the same level as a good coach yeah. You know, and he, even last week, I won't say who said it, but they said it would be great if we could get one tutor and one coach on the courses, you know, one tutor and one coach. And I said, uh, I'm a coach. Yeah, yeah. You know, I was like, I'm not a tutor. Well, I, I am a tutor, but I'm a coach at heart. Yeah, yeah. I still coach players, but it was even there, there was a, a box that I was put in. It was like, you're a tutor. Yeah. Let's get a coach in. I went, what? I've done it for 29 years, mate. <laughs> it's like, it's like, so, so I don't know if that takes us down a different road, but that, that's how I got started in it. Yeah. But my goal was never to be a coach, a tutor. My goal yeah. was to work with coaches on as much of as possible a daily basis if I could with players. And it's taken me maybe, let's say about four, four Four years ago, five years ago, I sat down and I went, this is not going the way I wanted it to. And I, I mapped it all out. I got the dining table that I'm sat at now, got the, the lining paper out and mapped it all out, what I needed to do to try and get where, where I wanted to. And it was last February, so February 2019, that it took, it, that finally came into play. So that was almost 10 years before. And there's not many people doing what I'm doing. Essentially, you know, because I'm a consultant, but I've had, and again, it's the infiltration. I've had to create my role. I've had to create almost a demand for my role. And uh, that, that took a long time to get people to realize there was value in having someone that can advise coaches and be, you know, help coaches accelerate their learning to accelerate the learning of the players and so on. So, yeah. That but there's, was, uh, something, there's something magic about creating your own role that I think mm. that I think so many people and I and again I can certainly talk about that I mean ten and a half years in Spain my, looking back there's no right for this tennis academy to have happened absolutely yeah. none at all none at all you know and but there's been heart 
soul, passion, blood, sweat, tears by many more people than myself, many more mm. people than myself that have, that, have, that have absolutely dragged it. However, with, at the heart of that has been accountability, yeah. Yeah. which I've learned to absolutely fall in love with accountability. Mm. You know, the, the thought of having a job where I'm not completely accountable at all levels to, mm. to everything that's going on fills me with fear now actually it's like mm. i can't think of anything worse you know getting yep. up in the morning just knowing that i'm going to kind of tick along and and absolutely that's what that's what you've you, you that you've created you know but two questions if you don't mind me taking you back a little bit chris yep. is where was your career going that you didn't like and and where did you steer it back to go the well i suppose it, in terms of the coach education you mean yes so you said yeah. so you said that you when you sat yeah. down four or five years ago yeah. you felt it was going in the wrong the wrong direction yeah well it, it was again it, i was overly conscious that people were seeing me in a certain way uh, and it was the coach edge it was this kind of tutor now to be careful how i say this because some people could take offense the, the easiest way for me to, I suppose, say it is that I believe that the best educators are the ones that can get people to be practically able to do wh what they do. Yes. You know what I mean? So it's not information. It's yes. being able to practically apply. And I felt, and I still do feel that too many people see tutors or coach educators as almost a tennis professor like the lecture yes. the lecture tennis now i didn't want to go down that road so i always wanted to try and stay in the trenches i don't want to be seen as a university lecturer in tennis yes. so i i it was going that way so i i trying to steer it back in terms of finding a way to work on a regular basis in the trenches with coaches, within programs, with their players. Uh, so that, that, that was probably the biggest diversion that I, yeah. I took. You know, like it would be quite easy for me to do it, relatively speaking, to fill my diary with coach education courses, but I would be miserable. Yeah. Because I, I love meeting new coaches and working with them and getting some time with them. But it's purely, in most cases, information. And for me, the formation and transformation is more gratifying. Put really well, put really well. And uh, it, because my, one of my things I wanted to speak to you about was when we talk about British coaches, they, uh, whenever someone asks me, and, and, and we talked about this, the Bruno and Juan podcast, some of these things mm. came up, the differences between Spanish coaches and British coaches. And I think we all very much agree British coaches are very well educated, mm. theoretically, mm. theoretically educated. And I think one of those, those boys said, you know, you speak to an 11 year old in the UK, they'll tell you exactly why they've gone down the line. They'll, they'll tell you every, they'll give you this like perfect answer. Mm. Whereas often the Spanish kid will do it, but I have no idea why they do it but yeah. they'll, do it, they'll do it bloody well. Yeah. So, so how, 
if we if we agree, some people listening might disagree, and that's fine. But if we agree that that is, you know, and again, you put it much better than I have, Chris. But if we agree that British culture is very well educated theoretically, how do we make it more practical? How do we how do we bring that through? I think there's two ways. I think it's currently happening, which I think is good in terms of uh, courses being restructured and and having a better focus on their formation, you know, their ability to actually practically apply the the knowledge. Uh, So that's one way. But at the end of the day, we both know that people spend more time away from education than they do in it. So the, the key for me would be to go down the mentoring road and actually have some sort of way. And I voiced this a couple of years ago, actually, at the LTA saying, you know, if I could wave a magic wand, I would just have like a, almost do a really basic uh, study on which coaches are the ones. It's like that 80-20 rule, isn't it? It's like 80%, uh, so 20%, not even 20% in tennis, but like the tiny minority of coaches are producing the majority of the players. Have your hotspots in the GB map and you say, right, you approach them and say, would you be open to being a, a, a mentor and opening your doors to anyone that wants to come in and, and view your program, be a fly in the wall, no strings attached. You don't have to mentor them as in, you know, fill forms out and whatever, just open your door first and foremost. And I think that for me, a hundred percent has been my biggest learnings. The acceleration of my career has not been from the education. It's yep. been from the on-the-job learning with coach who's been there, seen it, done it. Yep. I think, I know, I believe 100% you need a bit of both. You know what I mean? Yep. Because it, the, the flip side of it is we're going back to no system, no uh, methods, no tools, no print, like you're just relying on seeing somebody and it's like see monkey, do monkey. So the, yeah. I think the sweet spot is to, to have good information, but then eventually go and work with somebody that knows how to apply that. Yes. Uh, and the analogy I give quite a lot, which makes sense to me, but is that it's the, a good coach is like a, a really great flash um, website. You know, let's say take a really great behind the scenes, behind the website is an absolute minefield of templates and coding and, you know, all sorts of different things. But the front page is what we see and what we deal with. And a great coach is like that. They've got all that knowledge and understanding and whatever. And it could be that they, with one click, they can make, make it functional. Yeah. but there is years of experience gone into being able to know what button to click. And, yeah, and yeah. I think you can't get that in education. That's yeah. experience. So yeah. it seems like an obvious solution. Of course, educate people, but then attach them to people that can do it. Yeah. And then through, through hard work, through trial and error, you actually eventually go, I know how to get to that solution with one word in yeah. one second rather than half an hour of telling them angles of separation and yeah. you know all that nonsense you know, so. really well put chris and and I, if i would add just on that as well i'm also a big believer in picking the right candidates and yeah. the candidates for the right reasons so i've had a few we've had quite a lot of irish players on here and you know, i've spoken to tennis island a few times and i actually um, had a phone call from, I'll not name the federation, but it's a federation that we all know quite well. 
um, a few weeks ago, and, and on, on, on which I thought was very good that the, these people are reaching out and asking questions. What, what do I know, I guess, but at least they're, they're, if they're speaking to me, I guess it means they're speaking to lots of people. Mm. So I wouldn't be the first person that they would come to. And, and my advice was that they need to start identifying young, old, whatever coaches, but the coaches that, that have, we go back to that word passion, but they, mm. and, and passion, but understand, understanding, but also understanding and awareness, but then the real, the real readiness to do what it takes yeah. to coach to a really high level. Yeah, you know, yeah. And, and I think rather than just let me try and get a bit of paper so that I can charge a bit more money. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. You know, yeah. who who are we identifying? Because it's not it's not for everyone. You know, I've sat down with my coaches at the start of this term and gone through personal goals and professional goals, and and it's like, and I've said to some, and I've had a couple of them that said they want to coach on the tour, and I've sat and done. Well, do you know what that takes? <laughs> Do you know what it takes? You know, you, you want to coach on the tour, but you don't want to work on Saturdays. Yeah. <laughs> you know, let's, do you know what I mean? let, let's, get, let's get real here. You know, let's get, let's get real on what, what the sport, and again, if I share a, a bit of a name drop, but he's, we have to mention him in nearly every podcast because he does listen to them, Dan Evans. <laughs> and speaking, to Evo, speaking to Evo a few weeks ago, and, and it, we were texting and he said, um, he said to me, enjoy your weekend, Although we all know what in tennis that we don't really have many of them, yeah, yeah. and that and yeah. that's just the reality to to yeah. to, to be involved at, at the high level. So almost yeah. what's what's the point if we are getting brilliant people that that are well are willing to open their doors and to mm -hmm. and to give this amazing mentorship and to and to share and all of these things. Let's share it with the people that actually are ready to yeah to yeah 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 yeah. Yeah, identify, and it come a lot of that comes back to that. I, I've got a bit of a bugbear on the word sacrifice. I know that if, you know people can use whatever words they want, but yeah. I I think the reframe of that is not sacrifice; it's investment. You're, yeah, yeah. you're investing your time. So the the amount of weekends I was away, and maybe I missed Bia and I missed you know the kids or whatever. Uh, of course, I'm sacrificing family time, but I'm investing in something else. That's why it's really important for me to do quality work because yeah. if I wasn't doing quality work I would feel like I was sacrificing the time yeah. but everything that I, I want to do is to better myself to better the people that I'm working with to better my career which ultimately will benefit my family and yeah. young coaches they're going back to right back to where we started they don't have that mentality they're not seeing it as an investment to pay forwards to to help themselves so yeah it's uh yeah we could speak for hours on that yeah no we could and, and lifestyle i think that again on that it's if you've got a happy lifestyle even though i actually changed the word work to lifestyle about four mm. years ago i don't talk, call it work anymore it's mm -hmm. just the academy is part of our family lifestyle yeah. you know and it, it happens to be that we spend a lot of time at tennis clubs <laughs> you know mm -hmm. but yeah, yeah. but we're happy most of the yeah. time doing that you know and that's yeah. you know and it's fulfilling rather than maybe going on a nine till five job and coming in miserable every night as well yeah. you know that that investment comes back and um, i have to ask you chris two people two people that i know you've worked a lot with um two people that i think are absolutely brilliant but i don't know them and haven't worked as closely as you and um, the first one 
Judy Murray. You know, obviously mm-hmm. you've, you've been very close to Judy and worked very closely with her. I said this to Judy as well when she was on the podcast. Judy Murray is Judy Murray. She's not the mum of Andy and Jamie. You know, she yeah. is. But in her own right, she's absolutely fantastic. What makes Judy so good at what she does? If I go big picture first, it would yeah. be she is a world-class person. Yeah. You know what I mean? like she genuinely cares. She wants to create opportunities, not just for or back in the day, of course, it was for competitive tennis players, but now it's more for uh, the kind of grassroots, if you like. And she will go out of her way to open up doors for people to create those opportunities. She will invest a lot of her time, effort, and money to do that. So quite selfless yeah. uh, in that respect. So that, that would be one aspect as a person, just, yeah, world-class. As a learner is I would say probably yeah I'm going to put it right up at the top in terms of I think there's you know you can relate that to coaches and players it's like their capacity to learn I think there's there's a difference between the capacity to learn and the want to learn that she is able to apply herself to so many different things and absorb it all and learns really quick it's a silly analogy, but or example, but when she first showed me around Cromlick's hotel, and she was the, the detail that she was going into about you know light shades and this and that, and it was it struck me as we were walking around getting the tour, it was like, oh my god, she's actually now she's learned how to to kit out a hotel and everything that not just that but everything that goes around it. So she's a sponge in that sense. Yeah, yeah. And I don't have any issue saying that because it's a huge compliment, I think. Absolutely. And I think the, the third element that makes her what she is, is that she is really, really intelligent. <laughs> you know, I think, you know, so the person working hard, create opportunities to, she works hard for other people to create opportunities unbelievable learner and really really smart you know when you put those three things together you're going to make stuff happen you know and uh yeah that would probably be the easiest way of of breaking it down i think she's a great dancer number four yeah she's not got that (laughs) nailed down yet she wasn't quite as good because as soon as i said she's a great learner there's a a limit there's a capacity to what yeah in terms of helping other people she's good but uh you know dancing's not one of them and the second person louis kaya jeez yeah he has in the most basic of ways dedicated his life to number one also learning like the guy is an absolute machine for learning and he would be my absolute epitome in terms of we talked a few weeks back on that zoom remember about high performance and for me high performance is you are all in you know it 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 come it goes to the front of your your life you know, it, it's, it's not a, you know, 90%. He is 100% in, and he is dedicated to helping his players and, and coaches as well to a degree that not many people in the world do. 
therefore he, he has that advantage. But man, the guy is so smart in terms of being able to conceptualize and make systems and frameworks you know to a yeah yeah and he still continues to do it he, every time i see him he's like oh, i don't say that word anymore I use this word because this is more <laughs> you know what i mean it's like it does it always refining his own methods and, and uh, tools yeah. so yeah big big time yeah like unique you know you're talking about one-offs you know he yeah. is you know I, I i've always said that he is one of the best coaches in the world not just doubles you know that a lot of people about double if you know he, if he wanted to apply himself to singles and he has done it he's been there and worked with some great singles players but he could equally coach singles players but yeah very special special guy Doubles is like what you talked about earlier with the tutor. Hundred percent. Yeah, I I experienced that as a player. Now I, nobody nobody thinks I played singles. Yeah, yeah. Nobody because because I, I guess the number one thing that would whatever goes on the website or whatever it might be, it, it stands out. British number one doubles player, mm. and my doubles ranking was higher. So I've had I have players all the time. Did you ever play singles, Dan? <laughs> she keep. <laughs> you've been serious I mean, I'm not saying I was the world's best but I was alright I was probably at British number 12 13 yeah. you know what a futures event and you know mm -hmm. played basically there was only my last 12 18 months of my tennis playing life that I didn't play singles or I was playing the challenger qualifying because mm. you know my ranking wasn't getting me in but it was yeah, like, yeah. It, 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 so I went I thought that when you were talking about the tutor before but it's I yeah. think it's the same with Louis you know, mm. Louis doesn't, he gets the credit to be the best doubles coach in the world, mm. but he, he's more than that. He's just, yeah. the guy's a flipping genius, isn't he? Yeah. <laughs> I, I, you know, and, and like, uh, you know, the, he can, he can wind people up because of the way he is, but he, without that, then he wouldn't be what he is. You know what I mean? It's like that whole thing, you know, I remember the first time I ever met him on a, on a coaching court I was literally like who the hell is this guy you know like there was no big introduction in terms of who he was and uh, he was just killing us like it literally first I would say it was 18 of us the first thing he did was he asked a question and nobody knew the answer and he just put 18 up on the flip chart and, and somebody said what's that for he says 18 out of 18 didn't know the answer and then he would ask another question. Nobody knew 18. He was writing 18s on this over and over. Now, the thing is, he uses this analogy a lot of the squeezing the juice and whatever. It's like, yeah. if you squeeze a lemon, what do you get? You get lemon juice. If you squeeze yeah. a grapefruit, you get grapefruit juice. And if I squeeze you, what do I get? You know, do I get clear juice or do I get putrid -y, you yeah. know, oily looking and juice? And I got that from an early stage. Yeah. So I think that's why we got on because he would squeeze me and if I didn't know the answer, I just go, I don't know. Yeah, yeah. I'll find somebody that does, or I'll go Google it or yeah, whatever, yeah. but I wouldn't fold like a human deck here. So yeah. he does it on purpose, but uh, yeah. he is a he's a genius. There's no two ways about it. Has he ever pulled you on court to, to nail your technique in front of people? He's been that's... quite good. He's been quite good with me. I could tell you, I couldn't, I could tell you a story, but I can't tell it on the podcast, but uh, it's more because of embarrassment to me and something I'll tell you afterwards. But yeah. uh, 
he's he's been quite good with me, yeah. I think, and I think there's maybe two reasons. I I think he likes me. Yeah. You know, going back to what we spoke about earlier on, but he also knows that there's the side of me that would tell him to do one. You know yeah. what I mean? He like he yeah. he. I remember early doors him saying that he. Um, you know, he saw a different side to me, like that he didn't really see to start with, yeah. which was that I would tell him if F off if he yeah. too far. So he's been yeah. quite good with me uh, over the yeah. years, I would say. Yeah. He pushed, I am, um, about three years ago, he very kindly invited me to, to come and talk on the, the level five. He wanted me to, to talk to the, to the candidates on a, on, a, on a couple of things. And I said to him, look, while I'm over, I'd love to join the three days. So I kind of jumped in the three days. And it was the first morning. I got like the six o'clock flight from Malaga. I rock up and I turn up to NTC at about 10 o'clock for the, for the first module. And I'm kind of preparing for my talk in that afternoon. And then Louis said, right, anyone want to hit some forehands? Dan, come and hit some forehands. <laughs> absolutely. I mean, I was cracking up. I, I'm, yeah, yeah. I think I'm, I'm secure enough about my tennis and also the fact that I'm not a tennis player anymore. He was absolutely rinsing my forehand. Like yeah, completely, yeah. completely rinsed it. And then the next day he saw me hitting some backhands. He went, thank God you can hit backhands. <laughs> but, but I he, think he, he does that. Take that as a compliment because he tends to do that with people that are good. Because he knows yeah. that I'm not an ex-player, I, I hit the ball okay, but he knows that I'm not that level, and I think he takes more satisfaction out of rinsing yeah, yeah. people that are yeah. decent yeah. Uh, yeah. than he does some punter like me. You know? Yeah, but no, he's he's absolutely brilliant, Chris. Yeah. We we could talk for hours and hours and mm. hours and hours. We we really couldn't. Uh, to be honest, I've forgotten that this was a podcast. Um, <laughs> <laughs> but but I have one last question for you before we go into, or, or might be a couple of questions around it before we go into the quick fire. I've put you in charge of British tennis. Um, you're, you're, you're the main man. Um, and, and I'm, I'm telling you that I want you to make effective change to the British tennis culture from mm -hmm. top to bottom. And you've got to give us a three way guide to how you, going to do it? Oh, Three-way guide. I would say that every tennis club that is affiliated to the LTA had to house tournaments on a regular yep. basis. Yep. I would then say that I would try and put a business model in place that would allow and facilitate coaches to be paid to watch players compete. Yeah. Yep. So you've got lots and lots of tournaments. Yep. And I would then fund and support more players with less money. Yeah. So I would have a bigger pool of players from all these tournaments and, and tournaments for all ages and stages. I th still think it might be lack of facilities or whatever, but I still think we have a culture in the UK where people perceive that only the best play tournaments. Yeah. And I think the difference between that and maybe in, in, in the continent is that there's a culture of just play tournaments. So yeah. you, at all levels, you've got opportunities to compete. So I think by opening the doors of all the clubs and saying, right, you as part of an affiliation, you have a duty to host tournaments, that would yeah. instantly allow us to have more layers and more opportunities. 
uh, we need to create a culture where coaches are watching their players compete. Yeah. Because there's still, you know, this gig economy where they don't do it because they've got their 20 hours at the weekend or whatever. Yeah. Um, and then I would take the big base of players that we have and I would look at opportunities to support as many of them as possible rather than focusing on maybe a few and giving them a lot. And I never told Chris I was going to ask that question. And I also have not edited any of that. So that's, that's impressive that you, you came up with such, such a good thing off the top of your head. I need to pick up on the competition thing, Chris. So if I take you back, I know that you definitely, whether it was individually or as a team, used to do some work with Johnny O'Mara, that sort of, that sort of era. If we go yeah. back to Johnny O'Mara, under-16 nationals, I believe Johnny O'Mara won it. But I also believe that six of the quarter finalists on the men's side that year all made it into top five, 600 in the world. Mm -hmm. Whereas that was nationals then. Yeah. <laughs> and, and if we talk about competition, we're led by our national event or should be. Um, mm -hmm. Whereas last year, I think two of the top 40 in the UK played the nationals. How, how, how big of a problem is that? It's huge. It's huge. I think that your best players, like if you take, you know, did you ever play Davis Cup? No, it's a sore point actually, Chris. All oh, right, sorry. Let's sorry, move on. Yeah. No, I've, I've, I've dealt with it. Yeah, but I'm guessing <laughs> that that would have been one of the highlights of your career if you'd yeah. even been in the squad, you know? Yes. And so to represent your nation is a huge honour. Uh, yeah. Whether it's me captaining Scotland or Britain in juniors or whatever, for me it's always been the biggest honour. And there, therefore, to win your national title should be a huge honour, in my opinion. Absolutely. For whatever reason, in the last 10, 15 years or whatever, it ha seems to be pushed back to not being the pinnacle of your domestic calendar and so on. Uh, I do think a lot of it historically and certainly in the last 10, 12 years, I've been voicing this quite a lot, is that it always comes at the end of the, the summer season. Yep. So what happened, and I know they've, they've changed that or they were yep. going to change it before COVID, yep. but it, every year you would have players crashing and burning in nationals early in the first round, second round, because they'd just been touring around Europe or whatever for six, seven, eight years and yep. felt duty bound to play because maybe at that time the funding was rewarding people that won nationals and so on so they feel they have to do it and uh, but I always thought put it on you know at the start of the season you yeah. know and uh, you know when people are fresh and whatever see who's the best but I don't I don't know the solution other than changing the calendar around which I know they've done but yeah. there needs to be some sort of uh, you know kudos if there was a Scottish a Scottish open for over 45s or whatever, you know, and I won it, I would be like, I've arrived. You know what I mean? It would Absolutely. be a huge, huge thing. So I don't know if it's, you know, because going back to what we talked about earlier, they're, they're funding a lot of these players and they therefore just by default don't view a domestic tournament that much because they've got yeah. bigger fish to fry on the ITF or tennis Europe scene or whatever. But yeah, yeah it's a big issue, I think. Yeah, it's even the Four Nations, the Four, the mm. four Nations event which was an incredible, it became the three nations because yeah. England, England dropped out. <laughs> as, yeah. If, yeah. as if we've got so much competition that actually oh, we don't need to do that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, it's like, yeah. And I just think that, 
that sets the real kind of standard, you know, mm. we're talking about, especially I think during, during what we've all learned over the last six months, I think we're, we're all in agreement that more localized competition is imperative. You know, I think yeah. having, having more localized tours, having the ability to do it without costing quite so much and starting mm. to build some, some stronger localized ways of working. It, it has to start with with the nation, and I'm sure, like I say, and, and I have to point out to the listeners that they have they have changed the national junior event. I believe it's April. Yeah, and, and, I, and I believe that the winner does get a wild card into Wimbledon qualifying that's right, for the yeah. under 18s. So that's a, I think that's a great step forward. Brilliant. You yeah, know, and I, and I think that can really move things forward. And um, last question: It won't be long before Andy and Jamie have moved away from playing. Hopefully we've mm -hmm. got a, a little bit longer with, with both of them. Um, have we built on the Murray era in Scotland and in Britain? Um, and if not, how do we do it quickly before we, before we lose them? Uh, I don't believe that we have done it to the potential that we could have. Uh, I think there were some leadership issues in the first 10 years, uh, particularly in Scotland, um, in terms of capitalizing on it. Uh, I also don't know if people fully understand what capitalizing on it looks like. Yeah, yeah. How can, how can you go about doing something if you don't know what the end picture looks like? Yeah. So lack of vision, lack of leadership in that sense. So I, I think the, the black and white answer is, up to now, it's not been capitalized. I know that things are in place to help make that better. Um, to go about doing it, for me, it comes back to a culture. And, and for me, a culture is, in the way I define it, is just what the majority of people do. Yeah. You know, so not everyone, but just what the majority of people do. So for me, the biggest thing is the culture of competition at all ages and stages. That's a culture of tennis. Every country that has a culture of tennis, you know, yeah. the word gets banded about all the time, you know, Italy, look at what they're doing now. It is based around the majority of people just in their lifestyle is tennis competition. Yeah. You know what I mean? You, you go to a tournament, the families are there. They're yeah. like, I remember even going to an ITF in Almere, just outside Amsterdam, they had the ITF on and there was grandparents, aunties, uncles, the whole family from like toddlers all the way up to like 80 year olds there just watching tennis. Yes. Yeah. So it comes back to what we said earlier on. It's like the goal should be that people have at least an interest in tennis, whether that be go and watch the kids play in the tournaments locally, to helping out in the tuck shop, to organizing the tournaments, to coaching the players, to, you know, having a retail whatever you know there's so many yeah, different yeah. strands to it so I, I've definitely not answered that question but I think the culture comes down to creating opportunities for as many different people to experience tennis yeah. in in its finest form which in my opinion is it the game yeah uh, so you know I, there's no danger I would have become obsessed with tennis if Ken had not put me into those tournaments yeah. If I hadn't played a tournament within the first six months or whatever, I would have gone and found something else. Yeah, yeah. Competitive in. So, yeah, I think uh, a, a bit to go, but at least the, the good thing about it not having been done in the 
10 years is there's a lot of potential to make a big impact in the next four or five years. Yeah, I think the boys are also ready to drive that as well. You can sense Hopefully. as yeah. as they yeah. get a little bit older and mature and a, a little bit closer to the end, you can just feel it that they're, and also, you know, you can certainly with Jamie with all the competitions he's setting mm. up, but also Andy seems to be getting closer to British tennis in particular, you know, mm. and I, I don't know whether that's Scottish tennis. That's just from my my yeah. eye from the outside, um, you know, and I think I think they're both pretty determined characters. So if they do decide that they're gonna they're gonna try and drive something, I'm sure that they they are, and they've got a pretty determined mum behind them. Um, yeah. Quick fire round, Chris. Mm. Challenge. Yeah. Um, yeah. Dead easy. Yeah. Serve or return. Return. Forehand or backhand. Backhand. Competition or practice? <laughs> Competition. <laughs> the winner of the French Open Women's Tournament 2020. Alep. Winner of the men's. I'm going to go with team. Well, he's got to beat Rafa. He's got to beat Rafa and Djokovic, yeah. probably. Yeah. No, I'm going team. Yeah, I like it. It's brave. The highest ranking that Andy Murray will get to from now in his career. Exactly or a bracket? A bracket. Top 20. How incredible would that be? I mean, that's, if he does, it's probably the greatest achievement ever. I think, it, like, I feel slightly bad for just saying, yeah, I think top 20, top 15. I think it's still, I mean, I, I, I mean, his level's obviously there, but to do that, he consistently has to do it for a year. Yeah. And to, he would be the first person to come back from the operation he's had to do that. So you'd be, but he's already opened up new, um, knocking yeah. barriers down with what he's doing. Um, you might have heard this one on the podcast quite a bit, so you might have a little bit of time to think about it. Should there be an injury timeout or not on the court? No, no, I absolutely not. I can't remember who it was you had on your show, but it was genius. It was like it should be. Uh, uh, you get medical advice. Yes, that's that's the absolute most you can get, uh, and it should be based around: Am I going to do myself like injury or serious yeah. long-term harm if I carry on? Yeah. And that should be it. I think it's also, I am going to go off, not off on a tangent, but off on one about this. If you think about, you know, performance enhancing, you know, why, you know, you can't take anything for performance enhancing. Why should get like a massage halfway through a match to help you elongate your performance? It's just, yeah, I just never thought you should be able to do it. Yeah, I agree. And one rule change you would have in tennis? Get rid of the let on the serve like at pro level. I'm so bored of seeing the machine like fluff up the net cord. You know, and I, you know how much of a geek I am. I did this years and years ago. And um, when I coached a girl, she was six foot and uh, she served, she was about 13, 14 at the time. She served about 108 to 110, about 108 to 110. She was, that's how we, we knew she was serving around there. And she went through a phase in the match court of hitting the tape yeah, like consistently hitting the tape, and I said, "What's going on with that?" And she said, 
because I know I'm hitting my serve at 110 miles an hour, I feel like I've got to hit it really low over the net. Yeah. So at that time, we, we were working with the National Institute of Sport, which was in Aberdeen University. And I got the uh, people in the university department to work out from six foot plus her reach with airtime, the trajectory she'd be hitting the ball at. And I wanted to know the net clearance when she hit the ball at 100 miles an hour uh, from about 30 centimeters from the service line. And she had 30 centimeters net clearance with the, the math. And I did the math again last year and it came out again. Because, you know, sometimes time goes by and you think, it, were they BSing me? And they weren't. So we checked it again. So when you see someone like a Sverev hitting a serve from six foot six plus with his airtime, with his reach, and the ball lands maybe six, seven inches in from the thing and the machine goes beep, I know it is 100% not possible that he was anywhere remotely near the net tape. And you see their face, they're going, what? That wasn't anywhere near. I don't understand why they can't Hawkeye that. I would Hawkeye that serve and it would yeah, be yeah. like 20 centimeters of the net. So I'd get rid of that. It's a waste of time. Hey. <laughs> Go off and want a bit in the net cord. Um, we're going to have to rename it. It's not quick fire anymore. And my last one that I've just added in because I, I would love your opinion on it. Men's tennis grand slams, five sets or three sets. Oh, I'm, I thought a lot about this. And I think the compromise is best of five from the quarterfinal onwards. I just got like, I love best yeah. of five. I absolutely love it. Yeah. Yeah. Maybe last 16 onward. I don't know. I don't, I don't know if that would ever happen, but there's nothing better for me. I love the, the word event. And when you watch a best of five set match, for me, it's an event. Like, you know, when you get a Grand Slam final, you sit down, you get, you get everything ready, or maybe that's just me, and you, you, prepare, <laughs> you prepare yourself that you, this is an event. And uh, I love that side of it. But when you see things like, you know, say somebody has two or three best of fives, you know, last 16 quarters and semis, or the Kevin Anderson one, you know, in Wimbledon. Oh, yeah. done by by the final and I think well and also the scheduling and keeping players healthy and yeah. uh, all that if you talk about health happiness and health being massive priorities maybe best of five at slams is actually putting that at risk slightly but yeah, yeah. I mean I love best of five yeah but I'm a bit of a tennis geek as well mm. so like I guess I guess that my one issue of best of five, listening to the arguments, because it feels like it's coming to a head. It feels yeah. like more and more people are talking about it. Mm. Is whether the youth of today like best of five, mm. and whether we are capturing them in a in a world of instant gratification. You know, yeah. so how are we? We know the complexities, and we know that. It, the the ebbs and the flows and the drama and you know that's mm. that's the special thing about it but are we in danger and, and as i ask this question i'm thinking we could go to 25 more minutes here but are we yeah. in danger are we in danger of you know not attracting people to our beautiful sport you yeah know, because if we go yeah. back again to the very start of this podcast you know you you were attracted to the sport for, for your own reasons, but by mm. your own admission, there wasn't many of you that were. 
you know yeah. so and it's even harder nowadays how, how are we getting you know we're competing with so many things um mm. so but yeah i i still for me i i just love those best of fives and even yeah. if we look at the french open there's already been some humdingers in the mm. first round in the first round or two i mean yeah. city pass yeah. would have been out rublev would have been out and his best of three so yeah anyway uh, chris Suter, <laughs> loved it love chatting absolutely yeah just brilliant i knew it was going to be i was looking forward to the chat and, and it, it didn't disappoint as it never does so thank you so much for coming on absolute pleasure and and all the best and, and again guys anyone that hasn't been listening to chris Suter's tennis journal get on it get on your podcast link he's got some brilliant guests um and i and i fully fully recommend it perfect Thanks for the plug. <laughs> Thanks, Chris. Cheers. Big thank you to Chris Suter. Love the chat, mate, as, as always. Hope everybody enjoyed, enjoyed the podcast. Please get in touch. Let us know about your big takeaways from the podcast. Just to let you know of what's up and coming. This Saturday, we have the Great Britain Davis Cup captain, Leon Smith, who is coming on to the show. So I'm sure you're all going to be looking forward to that. Make sure you subscribe so that you don't miss the release date. And then lots more guests continuing. It's uh, it's becoming a full-time job, uh, a job that I, I'm certainly thoroughly enjoying. Um, but yeah, the, having the opportunity to speak to these guests. So for now, I'm going to leave you guys to it. I'm Dan Kiernan. My co-host, John McGann, who is still alive and well, and will be, will be back on an episode soon, I am sure. We are Control the Controllables.